Welcome, everyone, to the Religious Learning Program. I'm your host, Cameron Zurich, and today we have with us back on the show, Jonathan Burke, all the way from Taipei, Taiwan, and he is the author of Living on the Edge, which is an apologetics book that is not like other apologetic books, as it's very academic and very thought-provoking and very good. Welcome back on the show. Thanks, Cam. It's a pleasure to be back here. So one of the things I want to talk to you today about is Jesus' mythicism, which you do cover some in your book, and you've also written some other articles. Can you give us a little bit of a history of Jesus' mythicism? Basically, you could say it started in the 19th century as part of a broader critical examination of the Bible from a secular perspective. And as you would probably be aware, there was a a shift in academic Bible studies in those days towards what was called critical thinking, critical analysis. This was actually part of a broader trend of critical analysis of texts, which had started much earlier, even during the Renaissance, actually. Looking at things from a secular perspective, attempting to analyze texts objectively, standing back and attempting, as it were, to remove yourself from the prior assumptions about the text. As a result, texts such as a lot of the Greek classical texts were also studied in this way. It's important to remember that this kind of critical approach wasn't simply aimed at the Bible. And in fact, scholars became very interested in analyzing, for example, the historicity of the Trojan Wars and examining other Greek and Roman texts to see how legitimate they were. And of course, this eventually bled through into biblical studies. Now, consequently, of course, there was a skepticism applied to the Bible, and people were arguing that perhaps the miracles didn't happen, perhaps they didn't happen at all. And there was an attempt to get behind the Bible to the original events and kind of reconstruct what the Bible may have been presenting in a propagandistic way, so to speak. As a result of this, the analysis of the New Testament was the next step, and consequently, people became especially interested in attempting to reconstruct the reality of the historicity of Jesus and his life. And some people, the more they examine them, believe that looking at the text, there wasn't actually much to go on. Because once you treat the text with a critical eye and you believe the text is now an untrustworthy record, or at least requires external substantiation, then of course the next step is that you need to find historical sources. And there just really aren't many contemporary historical sources for Jesus outside the Bible itself. And I am emphasizing that word contemporary, meaning sources written by people who actually lived at the same time as Jesus himself. Of course, as you would know, it's not at all easy to find contemporary historical sources for major historical figures in history. And even in some cases where we have one or two scraps of contemporary evidence, sometimes they're a little bit weak or a little bit suspect. For example, there's virtually no contemporary historical evidence for the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, as you would be aware. Um, Only in the late 20th century, finally, there was one inscription found. We had coins minted during his era, which didn't have his name on them. And in the late 20th century, I think in the 60s, finally, there was a a stone with an inscription found on it, which uh, recorded Pilate's name. And in fact, this was such slender evidence for the historicity of Pilate that Even some people remain sceptical about his existence. Outside the Bible, of course, uh, that was the only historical evidence for the existence of Pontius Pilate. 
But of course, people generally aren't very concerned about the historicity of Pontius Pilate because he's not quite as so influential a figure as Jesus Christ. So in the German rationalist school of study, there emerged the idea that possibly Jesus may not actually have existed and could have been a composite figure of perhaps other historical figures or a composite figure of archetypes or figures from earlier in the Old Testament, a kind of a literary figure, if you will. So to me, it makes sense that there's no contemporary evidence for him at this time. At best, you know, maybe at its high, 10% of the population was literate, if even that much. But there is some very recent people around the time of Jesus, or at least near his death, that wrote about him, and one of them is Josephus. Now, I know that there are some people who, you know, are critical of this passage about Jesus, and some of it is considered heavily influenced by Christian scribes or copyists. However, I know Bart Ehrman and scholars like that have pointed out the meat of the text about the existence, or at least people claiming that Jesus existed, is still in there. You want to expound upon that a little bit? There's definitely the fact that there is a passage in Josephus, the partial authenticity of which is disputed, but even though there has been an absolute mountain of paper written about that passage, in fact, the general scholarly consensus is that the Christian interpolations into that text are detectable, and if you remove them, there is still a definite reference to Jesus himself, which is quite unremarkable. Now, what is fascinating about this particular reference is that the reconstructed reference to Jesus has received some support from historical evidence. Now, what happened was that after various attempts to analyze the text, scholars came up with a generally agreed-on reconstruction of what that reference to Jesus would have looked like once you had removed the Christian interpolations. And, of course, after that reconstruction had been made, there were still people who said, well, you know, that is just a reconstruction, and I, and I could reconstruct the text in a different way, and it wouldn't refer to Jesus in that way. So reconstructions aren't evidence, basically. Remember that the, the text of Josephus, of course, is found in quite a few different copies. Okay, so we have Greek copies, Latin copies, and we also have some copies in a couple of other languages. And subsequently, a new text of Josephus was found. In the late 20th century, a Syriac text was found, an Arabic text was found, actually, in which a writer quotes this same text of Josephus. Okay? That text of Josephus is very, very close to the Reconstruction. So we have here, actually, an independent source of the text. Somebody, an Arabic writer, is quoting the text of Josephus, which doesn't have that Christian interpolation, and it actually matches very, very closely to the scholarly reconstruction. Yes, it's true that that text is a 10th century Christian manuscript, but it's written in Arabic, and very importantly, it's a Christian manuscript without those other Christian interpolations. And this suggests two things. One, that this particular Christian scribe had an alternative source, an alternative textual source for Josephus, which was not corrupted by those interpolations. And two, it demonstrates that this Christian source was perfectly happy to copy and record a quotation from Josephus, which did not amplify the text in any significant way. So this scribe was faithfully recording something which didn't make Jesus out to be God or, or a divine being, and looks like a fairly mundane reference to an itinerant Jewish preacher, 
written in a fairly neutral way by the Jewish historian Josephus. This actually caused a great deal of excitement in the academic world because here you had an actual test case of a reconstructed text. You had a text which was reconstructed hypothetically and then against all odds some literary evidence was found which actually put that hypothesis to the test and remarkably the hypothesis was substantiated and of course most of the time when scholars reconstruct a text they don't get anywhere near this lucky you're just left with the question of how well you've actually managed to reconstruct the text but in this case the the neutral so-called neutral reconstruction of the text was validated by this unexpected piece of historical evidence. And that's why today scholars believe, yes, this has been pretty much put to bed now. There is a genuine historical reference to Jesus by Josephus. And that is remarkable since Josephus is writing, of course, near the end of the first century, 80s to 90s. And of course, this means that he was writing literally within living memory of Jesus. So he's not a contemporary, but he is living within living memory. That is, he's writing at a time when actual eyewitnesses of Jesus would have been still alive. So he's writing in the 90s and he is recording events which happened, say, only 70 years earlier, which is within living memory of possible eyewitnesses. And I think Josephus is important for a big reason, that is, is he wasn't a Christian and he has no reason to promote the idea of Jesus. And there's other references outside the Bible by non-Christians, and two of them is going to be Pliny the Younger, who wrote to Trajan, and also Tacitus, the Roman historian. You want to discuss a little bit about what why Pliny the Younger is important? Okay, yeah. Now, Pliny's an interesting reference. He's writing in the early 2nd century, the first decade of the 2nd century, and he writes a letter to the emperor Trajan asking about advice about what to do with Christians. So he says, well, I keep on coming across these weird religious people, these, I know, they're kind of cultists, I guess. And of course, for for plenty, anybody who isn't following the standard Roman religion is a cultist. So these are these unorthodox religious people. And he explains what he knows about their beliefs and practices. And he asks what to do about them. And Pliny says that they have this habit of getting together every week and worshipping this person called Jesus. Now, Pliny's letter is interesting because it is an early testament to the regular memorial of Jesus by Christians. But on the other hand, it is talking about Christians and Christian beliefs about Jesus. So it's one step removed from actual evidence for Jesus himself. For example, Pliny isn't talking about Jesus as a historical figure that he has heard about from other people or historical sources. He's talking about Christians who believe in Jesus. So this is a more indirect reference than Josephus. Consequently, historians and scholars of the historical Jesus give this reference less weight than Josephus' reference because it's not a direct attestation of Jesus. Nevertheless, it is still worthy because Pliny, of course, doesn't dispute the historicity of Jesus. You might say, well, I mean, why would he? But, of course... The point is he doesn't discuss Jesus as a mythical figure or only a spiritual figure. And that's important because some people believe that the early Christians themselves didn't believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. They believed he was some kind of spiritual figure. 
who never actually came to earth. But here Pliny at least attests to the fact that people believed, early Christians at that time believed that Jesus was a real historical figure and that he was actually on the earth. So Pliny's reference is indirect, but still useful. And I, I would assume you would uh, give that same verdict for Tacitus as well. Actually, Tacitus is stronger because his is actually an explicit historical reference. Tacitus himself is in a different category to Pliny because unlike a Roman governor writing a letter to the emperor asking for advice about what to do with Christians, Tacitus is writing a history. So Tacitus writes about Jesus as a historical figure. He refers explicitly to Jesus. He refers to him explicitly as the founder of Christianity and he cites his crucifixion and he says it was by Pontius Pilate. So his brief mention of Jesus actually provides some very good historical evidence for Jesus' historicity. Now, similar to the passage of Josephus, the reference in Tacitus has been challenged by some scholars who claim that it was inserted by later Christians, but this is considered pretty fringe and not accepted by mainstream scholarship, which acknowledges it as one of the earliest historical references to Jesus and his crucifixion under Pilate. And that set of details is a particularly strong combination. You have Jesus as a historical figure, Jesus as the founder of Christianity, Jesus crucified, and Jesus crucified specifically by Pontius Pilate. So whether we say, well, he heard about this from Christians or even that he heard about it from Josephus, it's still a historian citing Jesus as a historical figure and citing that same set of important details, which we know is attested clearly in the Gospels. Actually, Tacitus references are a pretty good match for what we find in the Gospels. Now, there are other ancient historians that uh, talk about Jesus, but I'll, I really want the readers to purchase your book and read through those. So I want to turn to the Gospel themselves. Uh, yes, the Gospels are going to be very one-sided. They're obvious purpose of the Gospels is to try to convince the community or the, the listener to uh, believe in Jesus. However, even taking out all these, let's just assume that these miracles didn't happen. Taking that out, the Gospels still have evidence that Jesus really did exist. And one of the methodologies that scholars use is putting in there perhaps embarrassing details about Jesus or Christianity themselves, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah is not supposed to be from Nazareth. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. And so for the Messiah, the most important person in the Jewish and Christian religion, to be known to be from a town that's not based on the prophecy is not something that someone would make up, right? You would want to. Mm, yeah. if, if you were to make it up, you would want them to be in Bethlehem. It would make the story so much easier as far as defending. Um, what other methodologies and or even other spots in the Gospels that may be embarrassing, what methodologies have scholars used to prove within the Gospel that Jesus really did exist? Okay, now that's a, a very good question, and it's a much debated question. And people who reject the historicity of Jesus typically attack the method of studying the historical Jesus, claiming that it's based on arbitrary criteria which aren't used in other historical fields. So let's unpack this a little bit. You mentioned the criterion of embarrassment, which I'll cite in a minute and explain more about that. First of all, it's important to differentiate between two key concepts. One is historicity and the other is authenticity. 
historical examination of the life of Jesus referred to by scholars as the quest for the historical Jesus. Now, the aim of the quest for the historical Jesus is not to prove the historicity of Jesus. That's the work of a professional historian. So the quest for the historical Jesus actually starts with the idea that Jesus is a historical figure. And you might say, well, that's begging the question. But remember, this is not attempting to prove his historicity. So it's not a question of begging the question. It's a question of following the scholarly consensus that Jesus was a historical figure. Then the quest for the historical Jesus is, well, if Jesus was a historical figure, what did he do? And who was he and what were his aims? So the aim of the quest for the historical Jesus is to reach a conclusion on who Jesus was and what his aims were. And that's where some people get confused because they hear quest for the historical Jesus and they think that the quest for the historical Jesus means a way of proving that Jesus really existed. As I mentioned, the historicity of Jesus is not questioned by this quest for the historical Jesus because that historicity has already been established and accepted by the scholarly consensus of professional historians. And here we have two separate sets of criteria. The criteria used by professional historians to demonstrate that Jesus existed or to establish whether or not Jesus existed, that's one set of criteria. So those are historiographical criteria. And then we have criteria which are used to identify which of the information about Jesus describes him as a historical figure authentically. So historians apply a criteria of historicity to assess the probability of Jesus, and they conclude that he did exist. Scholars of the historical Jesus, on the other hand, apply what is referred to as criteria of authenticity to determine what he said and did and why. So we have criteria of historicity, which are used by historians to establish, yes, Jesus was a real historical figure. And then we have criteria of authenticity, the purpose of which is to determine, well, how much of this historical evidence represents the Jesus who really lived. Now, what you're discussing and what we're going to be talking about right now is the criterion of authenticity. So the criteria of authenticity assess the authenticity of the Jesus tradition, which consists almost entirely of the Gospels, Acts and the letters and epistles. So they assess the probability of sayings and events recorded in the Jesus tradition as authentic, what Jesus really said or did. Because they are sometimes used to assess the probability of events in the life of Jesus, they are sometimes referred to, though uncommonly referred to, as criteria of historicity. And that's where people get confused. They should really be referred to as criteria of authenticity because they are not about proving that Jesus really existed. What they are about is demonstrating which of these pieces of evidence we have about him are authentic, what he really did and didn't do. Typically, of course, they are referred to as criteria of authenticity, not criteria of historicity. Now we have that established, let's have a look at the various criteria which are used. And I'm going to focus on the five which are used by professional historians to assess the authenticity of historical evidence for other historical figures. And that's an important point to make because, as I mentioned previously, people who doubt the historicity of Jesus or even reject the historicity of Jesus often say, well, the quest for the historical Jesus uses arbitrary criteria which are only used by biblical scholars and they kind of come up with this set of criteria which favors the view of Jesus that they want. So the idea is that these criteria are unique to the field of Jesus studies, they're not used by real historians and they're intrinsically biased. 
So I'm going to focus on the five criteria used to establish the authenticity of the events concerning Jesus and his life. I'm going to focus on the five which are used by actual historians establishing the historicity of events in other historical fields. Firstly, the criterion of multiple attestation. Now, anybody who is remotely familiar with history should know this. If you have multiple independent sources reporting on an event, at least in generally the same way, this is typically understood as strengthening the case for the historicity and authenticity of the event. Firstly, at least the historicity, and secondly, the authenticity of one record of the event. So if you have multiple independent sources saying that a person lived and they did X, Y, and Z, then you can conclude there's a pretty good chance that that actually happened. And of course, this criterion is used in the quest for the historical Jesus, and it's used by professional historians. And professional historians do exactly what is done, of course, with those historical sources we mentioned previously. They say, well, we have these New Testament sources for the historicity of Jesus, but we also have independent historical sources such as Josephus and Tacitus, and they confirm at least bare minimum details about the life of Jesus. So yes, we have very good independent sources attesting the historicity of Jesus. Secondly, the criterion of embarrassment, which is a criterion that you cited earlier, and you cited one particular example of it. The criterion of embarrassment states that a historical record which is attempting to fabricate or at least in some way distort the record of a historical figure, particularly a historical figure who is intended to be recorded favorably by a writer, is likely to include historical information which could mask or explain away or otherwise mitigate damaging historical information about that figure. As I've mentioned before, this particular criterion is not simply used in Jesus studies. It's used by historians in other fields. As one example, Baruch Halpern is a Bible scholar who mainly studies the Old Testament and he wrote a work called David's Secret Demons, published in 2001, which examines the life of King David, recorded in the Old Testament. And he applies this criterion, among others, to try and separate fact from fiction and get behind the rather glowing report of David in the Old Testament. He actually uses this word embarrassment to explain why one of the historical sources describing the life of David attempts to disassociate David from a particular event. And another source uses it to exclude David from involvement in another event. Halpin concludes that this particular event in David's life actually did happen because historical sources favorable to David find ways to try and reduce his involvement in it because it was a bad thing that happened. So in a couple of cases, uh, there are events in David's life which are not very flattering of him. But these historical records of David record that event and seek to play down his involvement in it and minimize the amount of embarrassment it could cause to him. Now, you don't need to do that if the event didn't actually happen. If you're writing a record of a king, for example, of course, kingly records in the ancient Near East were typically propagandistic and definitely tended to amplify the role of the king and his life. And it's remarkable that, in fact, the life of David does describe him with as many flaws as it does. It's nothing like the typical record of an ancient Near Eastern king. His flaws are acknowledged, although, as I mentioned, in some of the sources we have, they're 
somewhat played down. So Halpin argues that these events really did happen because these scribes who were, in Halpin's view, attempting to legitimize the role of David as the king of Israel, had to find ways of getting around them and try to mitigate them because you couldn't pretend they didn't exist because everybody knew about them. Now, that's remarkable because it suggests that these scribes were writing in a context in which people knew that David had existed and were very likely writing for people who recognized the existing historical tradition about David. They had sources of information which told them about his life. And consequently, the historians of David couldn't pretend these events didn't exist. They had to try and explain why these historical events weren't as damaging to David's character as they seemed. So that's the criterion of embarrassment. And this criterion is used in Jesus studies to establish the authenticity of parts of the Jesus tradition. As you mentioned, there are some parts of Jesus' life which are highly unexpected if this is simply a made-up story trying to invent a historical figure who supposedly matches all the traditional messianic criteria in the Old Testament. And in fact, we have scholars noting that the birth records of Jesus don't really depict him in the idealistic way, cite him, his background is, is very lowly, and in fact, attempt to demonstrate that Jesus is the rightful Messiah in the knowledge that he doesn't seem to fit the description of what Jews at that time thought that Jesus was going to be. So that's the criterion of embarrassment. Another one is historico-contextual plausibility. So this assesses whether or not the event fits its purported socio-historical context. You look at the text and you see, is there anything out of place here? For example, if you read a story about first century Judea and a farmer is using a tractor, then obviously that wouldn't make any sense. That's a very late 20th century interpolation. Obviously, it's a fabrication because there's something here that doesn't make sense in the socio-historical context. This is, of course, a standard criterion of professional historiography in any field, and it's used to detect interpolations by later editors of a text. For example, many classical texts have been examined using this criterion, including the Iliad and the Odyssey, in attempts to date the text, and it has been used to, in particular to identify forgeries and pseudepigrapha and interpolations in historical texts. For example, there is a document called the Donation of Constantine, which is a document which claimed to have been written while Constantine was consul, and this document was actually in the Renaissance era discovered to be a forgery because it had reference to the consulate of Gallicanus, who was a Roman governor who lived much, much later than Constantine. So obviously that particular reference was ahistorical. Those two men didn't live at the same time, and that cast doubt on the authenticity of the donation of Constantine itself. Later on, of course, other scholars demonstrated that, yes, this document is false. So historico-contextual plausibility is used as another criterion to determine whether or not the events in Jesus' life actually happened. Fourthly, there is the criterion of natural probability. This one is taking the text from a critical perspective, attempting to assess it purely from the secular point of view, and consequently it concludes that non-supernatural events in a record are more likely to be historical and supernatural events are less likely. Now, for a religious believer, obviously, this seems a little bit biased. But remember, we are talking about analyzing a text from a secular perspective. And from that 
secular perspective in order to be as objective as possible it is considered valuable and necessary to suspend belief about supernatural events for example egyptologists when they analyze the egyptian record of the battle of kadesh which is the record of a battle between egypt and the hittites when they look at the egyptian record which contains a number of supernatural elements because of course the gods of egypt are described as helping pharaoh defeat the hittites they take out all those supernatural elements and they reconstruct the battle without them likewise classical historians do the same with the records of greek and roman historians taking out any reference to supernatural events and then looking at the text from that perspective now if you find that a particular event has supernatural elements which are unessential then that is good evidence for the historicity of the text for example if you have a record of the egyptian battle of kadesh with the hittites and if you take out all the supernatural references and you still have a record of a battle with hittites then it's very likely that that battle actually took place if of course you took out all the supernatural elements and there's pretty much nothing left then yeah you've probably just got a fable here a legend or a religious myth as i mentioned classical historians do the same with the records of greek and roman historians and if you take out those supernatural events if you still have a historical account then yeah that probably did happen but historians would say but we have no evidence for the supernatural events remember historians are going to be objective and say look i'm not saying that the supernatural events didn't happen i'm just saying as a historian i have no way of assessing their historicity i have no way of testing them likewise we know that the baptism of jesus according to the gospels was accompanied by supernatural events it was accompanied by the voice from heaven which affirmed that god approved of his son jesus and of course historians would say well we have no way of determining the historicity of a heavenly voice however if we take that out of the record we are still left with a very plausible record of an event of a baptism of a man in judea which fits pretty much what we know about baptisms in judea at that time so if we take out the supernatural events there is well pretty much all of the text remaining there's nothing surprising about this it's now a slightly more mundane record but there's nothing implausible about it so in the case of i think there's also an element of embarrassment in there too just because jesus is the messiah but he's being、yes. baptized by the forerunner john the baptist so there's also that element in there as well yeah very much so in, in fact getting back to that criterion you mentioned previously the criterion of embarrassment historians of the authenticity of the jesus tradition note that it is quite remarkable that this sinless man is going to somebody who he acknowledges is not as important as he is in order to be baptized and john even acknowledges that in the text and they demonstrate this is a clear case of embarrassment the gospel writer has to include information in order to explain to the reader why the perfect messiah is going to somebody who even acknowledges himself as less important as jesus and who of course is saying i'm baptizing people for the remission of sins if he's baptizing people for the remission of sins then why is the sinless jesus being baptized this is obviously something that wouldn't make sense and consequently the writer has to include some details to try and explain it this would not even be necessary if the event never happened in the first place if you were making this event up completely then you wouldn't write it in this way in fact you might not even write it at all 
you, you wouldn't have to if your Messiah was not supposed to be baptized, yet then you didn't have to write him as being baptized. Actually, on that point, you can see we've combined a couple of criteria here, the criterion of natural probability and the criterion of embarrassment. On that point, it's very important to note that the criterion of embarrassment is not used by itself. It is used in conjunction with other criteria. Just because something is embarrassing doesn't mean that necessarily it is true. And that's extremely important. This is one of the points that people tackle when they address the criterion of embarrassment. It's challenged on the grounds that, well, just because something's embarrassing doesn't mean it's true. And scholars of the historical Jesus would say, yes, we know. That's why we don't use it by itself. We don't say this is embarrassing, therefore it must have happened. It's used in conjunction with other criteria. And it must be understood that, of course, that this particular toolbox is used holistically. These criteria are used in conjunction with each other, layer upon layer. So if, for example, you have an event which passes, say, four or five criteria, that's pretty good attestation. If you have an event which passes only one or two criteria, that, of course, is weaker attestation. So criteria themselves are also weighed. Some criteria give you more likelihood an event. Some criteria give you less likelihood, like, for example, the criterion of embarrassment. In terms of weighing criteria, something like the criterion of embarrassment has less weight than other criteria. Consequently, it is used in conjunction with them. It's very important that you understand how these criteria are used. And critics of the historical Jesus and the authenticity of the Jesus tradition tend to treat these criteria atomistically, or perhaps being a little less charitable, divide and conquer. They say, oh, well, this individual criterion doesn't necessarily prove that this event was authentic, and this one by itself doesn't prove it, and this one by itself doesn't prove it. Consequently, none of these criteria prove it. But that's not, of course, how they are used. They're used like this. Well, we have eight criteria here, and this event is supported by six out of the eight. Consequently, there's pretty good evidence that this actually took place, or at least this is authentic to the historical tradition. All right, so that's the criterion of natural probability. And the next one, number five, and the last one I'm going to deal with here is style and language. Of course, this is an absolutely standard criterion in historiography. If you find a copy of a historical record and it's using language, vocabulary, and grammatical style, which is not historical to that period, then at the very least, you can guess that this is written by a much later editor. Therefore, it's less likely to be authentic, you would have to find an earlier source which demonstrates that this is reliable. In the study of the historical Jesus, the criterion of style and language is typically separated into two sub-criteria. One is called criterion of Palestinian or Aramaic phenomena, or a similar phrase, and the other is called criterion of style. The linguistic style has to fit the historical context of the purported events and the language itself, Aramaic in the case of Jesus' studies, of course. And if the linguistic style fits the historical context of the purported events and the language itself, then this is good indication that it's authentic. The language itself, Aramaic, in the case of Jesus, indicates the earliest form of the Christian tradition, since Jesus and the earliest disciples spoke Aramaic, and they did not write in Greek, as far as we know. And again, this is a criterion used in standard historical critical examination of other documents, texts, and events. 
again, going back to the donation of Constantine, there were anachronistic stylistic features and language which demonstrated this document was written far later than the era of Constantine. It used some post-imperial formulas and some medieval Latinisms which didn't exist in the time of Constantine. So obviously this document didn't contain the kind of language which we would expect of a late Roman imperial document. So those are five of the criteria used in the quest for the historical Jesus. Remember, they are criteria of authenticity. They're not trying to prove that Jesus really existed. They're testing the authenticity of the events in the historical records describing him. In addition to this, we have what are referred to as historical controls. Historical controls help to establish your baseline for the historicity of events. So controls used in the study of the historical Jesus include Paul's letters, Jewish historical sources such as Philo, Josephus, and even the rabbinical literature, and Roman records such as inscriptions, for example, the Pilate inscription I cited earlier, histories, primarily Tacitus, and government literature such as legislation and taxation records. These sources, without providing direct controls concerning events in the life of Jesus, except for Josephus and Tacitus, who do, provide controls for testing the historicity and probability of events recorded in the Gospels. So, for example, the description of Jesus' crucifixion. To what extent can we rely on that description as an authentic description? Well, what do you do? You go to Roman records. You find out, did they crucify people at that time? If so, how did they do it? Under what circumstances was it done? Did Pilate have the authority to command somebody to be crucified? Did the Jewish leaders have the authority to carry out an execution? This kind of information. Did they have to go to Pilate as the Gospels say they did? You have a look at these other sources and they act as historical controls on the record. They establish the historical limits within the, which the text has to operate. And of course, this is how you test other evidence. For example, is it likely that Jesus was buried? Would he have been thrown into a common grave? And of course, the Gospels note that the burial of Jesus was an unusual circumstance. It seems that they wanted to do this primarily because they were concerned that his body would actually otherwise be discarded. As I said before, this is also used in standard professional historiography to analyze other events. You can find in the scholarly literature on the historical Jesus plenty of reference to historical controls being used to assess the historical evidence for the authenticity of the Jesus tradition. Historical controls are used to assess the evidence that we have on the New Testament, and I can provide you with plenty of citations about that. So the important point to make here is that when people study the historicity of Jesus, they are not using some random arbitrary criteria. They are using the same criteria which are used by professional historians. And of course, it's professional historians who actually establish the historicity of Jesus, not Bible scholars. That's not their job. Bible scholars assess the authenticity of the Jesus tradition, the historical Jesus tradition. Bible scholars try and sort out which of the events and the descriptions in the historic tradition of Jesus are authentic to him and his life. One of the things I find most remarkable about Jesus is that we, we have somebody who was writing right after the death of Jesus, and that is Paul. What's unique about Paul is, is he references uh, Jesus' uh, other disciples and his family. And to me, 
I realize, you know, Paul is a Christian and he's writing, trying to convince people to believe in Jesus. But Paul itself, I think we have a very unique situation, especially for ancient times. Somebody that was only a few years writing, just a few years after Jesus' death, referencing actual eyewitness accounts. To me, if you look at other ancient figures, they don't have this unique situation. A lot of times they're written much, much later. They're historians, they're writing, you know, perhaps 200 years after this historical figure lived. And the reason I think it's so unique is, from what we can tell, Jesus was not necessarily the most famous figure in Israel at the time. That was a later thing after conversions to Christianity. What is your thought on that particular aspect of the historical Jesus? Well, of course, this is a really important aspect of the assessment of Jesus as a historical figure as well as the assessment of the authenticity of the historical tradition surrounding him. Paul is himself a remarkable figure because without Jesus, it's extremely difficult to explain Paul, as you note. And, of course, if you take Jesus out of the historical record, you need to find an explanation for Christianity. Now, people who deny the historicity of Jesus have various ways of doing that, but of course they're not very convincing, which is why historians typically dismiss them. It's extremely difficult to explain Paul and Christianity if Jesus didn't actually exist. And considering that Jesus was basically an itinerant Jewish preacher, mainly local to few areas in Judea, a tiny scrappy little province in the Roman Empire, it's remarkable that we have as much historical evidence for him as we do. With regard to Paul, of course, as you mentioned, he cites people that he knows who knew Jesus. He cites evidence for the family of Jesus, family members, James in particular, and James is cited in Josephus as well as the brother of Jesus. So we have an external attestation to the historicity of James. And when Paul does this, these references are typically incidental. It's clear he's not citing them to try and prove that Jesus exists. He's just citing them as almost background information, as side notes. And of course, this is exactly what we would expect from references to genuine historical figures. Now, apart from that, there is, of course, the fact that Paul himself is fully aware that in his own texts, in his own writings, he has to explain himself. He has to explain why he is going around and preaching to people. Now, this is particularly important in the case of Paul because Paul's letters contain very clear examples of the criterion of embarrassment in the life of Paul itself. Paul himself says, I was previously a Pharisee, and I knew about Jesus, and I rejected Jesus, and I persecuted Christians, and now I'm preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. So obviously I've got to explain myself. So there's absolutely no reason for Paul to do this if it never happened. There's no reason for Paul to explain his conversion to Christianity if he never actually converted and he's just making all this stuff up. He tells people that he was a great persecutor of the early Christians. And we have, of course, the record of Luke and Acts, which attests to this. I say Luke and Acts because very often they're treated as the writing of one particular author. Luke Acts is considered a continuous historical record. So, of course, explaining Paul without Jesus is extremely difficult to do. Now, for your benefit, I'm just going to run through 
11 points which are agreed on by the scholarly consensus on the historical Jesus, a kind of a bare bones historical Jesus, what most scholars, and this ranges from religious biblical scholars and religious historians all the way through to skeptics and outright atheists and Jews and, and, and other non-Christian people. So Jewish scholars and Christian scholars and other religious scholars, but also skeptical and non-religious and atheist scholars. Here's the bare bones agreement on the life of Jesus. One, he was born to a woman named Mary in Judea during the reign of Herod the Great. Two, he had a father, whether or not you believe he was the biological father of Jesus, he had a father whose name was Joseph. Three, he was baptized specifically in Galilee. Four, he became an itinerant preacher, so he wandered around Judea teaching. He didn't have a fixed location. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. Six, he conducted a healing ministry, which included at least some genuine acts of healing, whether we want to say that they are psychosomatic or you want to say that they were using herbal remedies or something else. Seven, he taught a subversive and countercultural socio-religious ethic, which he expressed in wisdom sayings and parables. Eight, he associated and identified with social outcasts. Nine, he criticized the established Jewish religious elite. Ten, he was arrested and crucified during the prefecture of Pontius Pilate for being a public nuisance and a social threat. And 11, he died at around 30 years of age. Now, even as a bare bones historical record, that's pretty substantial for a random itinerant Jewish preacher in a backwater province of the empire. And with that bare bones historical information established, of course, Paul and Christianity are completely explicable. Even on a minimalist reading of Jesus, even if we only accept those 11 points about him, Christianity is completely explicable, and of course, so is Paul. Without this, Paul becomes very difficult to explain, Christianity becomes extremely difficult to explain, and attempts to do so without this historicity of Jesus become extremely forced and arbitrary. So Paul, of course, is a very important figure in Jesus studies because, as you mentioned, he cites evidence which is within, not just within living, living memory but of Jesus, but people who are actually eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. And he describes Jesus as a real historical figure who was on earth at the time, a flesh and blood man who had family members. He was a real human being. And of course, he cites early sayings um, which were attributed to Jesus, and he cites evident, the kind of evidence that we would expect if he's describing a genuine historical figure. One of the things that Bart Ehrman, and he's, he's been a big warrior on this front, even wrote the book, Did Jesus Exist? But he said something that uh, really surprised me, and I can't remember which historical figure he's referring to, whether it's Socrates or Plato, but he said, we have more evidence for Jesus than we do for Plato or Socrates. And that, to me, I thought was pretty surprising, given the amount of people that do not contest whether Socrates or Plato exist, just from taking out the religious uh, aspects of Jesus and looking at the historical Jesus. Uh, 
so for for some people, at least on the internet, I think that has more to do with knocking Christianity rather than actually investigating the historical Jesus, uh, which some of these internet personalities, they basically say that Jesus is a ripoff of other religions, whether it's Mithras or, or the Egyptian gods. Uh, in your book, you discuss that argument and kind of knock it out of the park as far as debunking that. Do you mind giving us a short summary of why Jesus is not a ripoff of these other pagan religions? Sure. One of the first points that you note when you're looking at these supposed pagan parallels is that so many of them are expressed in terms that seem to be very accurate to the life of Jesus, but on a closer examination, when you look at the historical records they're drawing from, aren't really very accurate at all. For example, uh, somebody might say, well, this pagan figure, you know, this pagan figure, he, he, was also, he also had a virgin birth, just like Jesus. And you look at what the historical text says, and when I say historical text, I mean a, a text, a historical text recording the legend of this mythical figure, and it says, oh, this supernatural figure was born from a rock. Okay, now only with a particularly generous interpretation of the word birth could you say that somebody coming out of a rock is a virgin birth. Actually, I should, maybe I should say that it's a particularly generous interpretation of the word virgin as well. When you use the word virgin, you don't usually think about rocks. So one of the things you note is that people describe these parallels as being particularly precise. But when you look at the actual texts they're citing, they're incredibly general, broad, or in some cases, of course, nothing like what is actually attested. So, you know, you find uh, examples of, oh, well, you know, these ancient Egyptian gods have parallels with Jesus and uh, Osiris dies and he comes back to life again. Osiris dies and his body's cut up into pieces and his wife reconstructs them and does some magic and manages to bring him back for one particular night and then the magic doesn't work anymore. This is really nothing like what we see of Jesus. This is not actually a resurrection. Uh, now, one of the points about these supposed pagan parallels is that, of course, you have to explain how the gospel writers are actually using these texts. If you're, you're trying to say, oh, well, you know, the gospel writers, when they were writing about Jesus, they weren't really writing about a historical figure. They were drawing on these legendary stories about other mythical figures. But the list of supposed pagan parallels gets ridiculously large. You have these gospel writers who are supposedly drawing on Egyptian texts about Egyptian gods, Greek texts about Greek gods, Roman texts about Roman gods, Babylonian texts about Babylonian gods, sooner or later the amount of texts that these gospel writers are supposed to be reading and borrowing from becomes impractically large. And you have to ask yourself, well, who were these people who had this library of diverse world literature? And again, you might say, oh, but, well, a lot of these were stories. They were oral stories that people know about. All right, but then you have to explain who are these people in backwater Judea who were hearing about to such a degree of accuracy, who were hearing about Egyptian gods or Babylonian gods. Who was talking about the myth of Osiris in first century Judea? It has to fit the socio-historical context. And again, you can turn these criteria towards these people and say, well, you know, your story actually has to match the socio-cultural context. Who were these scribes who had this breadth of knowledge about these other pagan religions? 
and which texts were they drawing on or which oral traditions were they drawing on to cobble together this Jesus figure from this vast array of other literature. As I said, the comparisons aren't even really that accurate, but even if you say that that isn't really particularly important, then where are these people getting all this information from? Secondly, and this is something which is just massively overlooked, if you're a historian and you're trying to explain a particular event, you look at the closest source with the most explanatory power. So if you are looking, for example, at a record of a Jewish preacher who was raised from the dead, is it credible that you look for an explanation for this record in Egyptian texts written by people thousands of years ago, thousands of years before this person is supposedly writing about this historical figure of Jesus? Or do you look for the background of the resurrection of a Jewish preacher in first century Jewish beliefs about resurrection? You see what I mean? So what is more likely that a Jewish scribe who is even inventing, shall we say, a Jewish historical figure, what is more likely that he's going to be borrowing from a range of pagan literature, which is completely anathema, to the Jews at this time? Or is he going to be drawing from existing Jewish literature and beliefs? Of course it's going to be the latter. It doesn't make sense that he's going to step completely outside his socio-cultural context and draw from a smorgasbord of pagan literature, which would be anathema to him, anathema to his audience, and completely reject the entire socio-cultural context in which he is living. So again, looking at Jesus if we want to explain the record of Jesus, then it makes sense to explain it in a Jewish context because Jesus, at least as the historical record testifies, Jesus was a Jew and his earliest disciples were Jews, his earliest followers were Jews, and the people who wrote about him the first were also Jews. So from those two points of view, the entire argument is just basically a non-starter. It's not at all the way historians study history, nor is it the way that they test the authenticity of historical documents. So just kind of recapping what we've talked about, there's non-Christian sources, there's obviously Christian sources, including Paul and the Gospels. There's certain methodologies that historians use, not just for Jesus, but also other historical ancient figures. And people with PhDs who spent their entire life focusing on this type of field of discovering what Jesus said and whether or not he even existed, the scholarly consensus is yes, he does exist. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And on that point as well, I want to mention that this is not a bare appeal to authority. We're not just saying, well, these professional historians say Jesus exists. These guys got a PhD. This guy's written a thesis on this, that, or the other. This is not simply an appeal to authority. It's appeal to a broad scholarly consensus. And the whole point about a scholarly consensus is not because of who is saying it, okay? not because of the authority of people who are saying it, and not even the number of people who are saying it. So it's not an appeal to authority, and it's not an appeal to popularity either. It's not an appeal to numbers. It's the fact that you have this consensus itself, which has been built up by such a wide range of people in various different fields who, coming at this problem or this historical analysis from various different perspectives, so many of whom have 
no personal stake in this, all coming to an agreement. You know, that's why scholarly consensus is important. It's not about the number of people who agree, nor necessarily about the qualifications of the people who agree, but the fact that they do agree and the process by which they have come to agree. That's why scholarly consensus is important. You have a wide range of scholars assessing a particular field or subject from multiple perspectives with perhaps even multiple conflicting personal interests in the topic and still coming to an agreement. That's why scholarly consensus is important and that's why it's particularly significant in the case of the historicity of Jesus and the authenticity of the Jesus tradition. Well, thank you, Jono, for coming on and discussing this important topic. I like to uh, take credit for the fact that you're now on Twitter. Yeah, you finally appreciate my that. Arm. <laughs> uh, do you mind uh, giving us a list of where all we can find you, your academia profile, all all your plugs? Go ahead and do it. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, I'm I'm on academia under my name, Jonathan Burke, and my associated universities Monash where I did my master's degree so I'm on academia under my real name I'm also on YouTube as Radical Reformation Christianity and I'm on Twitter under the same name my profile name is obviously abbreviated those are the three main sources where I publish my work I'm thinking about starting a podcast maybe in the future and again that's something you you've prompted me to do a couple of times and that's something I'm going to look at because, of course, I have a lot of these videos and other texts which I've made which would convert very well to podcast format. And, of course, if I ever do that, I'll let you know. Well, thank you again, and uh, God bless. Thanks very much, Cam. Always a pleasure, and God bless you too.